Hi, I'm Phoebe Lover, and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I speak to big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at public-library.online. And if you enjoy the episode, I'd really appreciate if you could like, subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the author and poet Amy Key, whose debut novel Arrangements in Blue, Notes on Love and Making a Life came out last month. Inspired by Joni Mitchell's seminal 1971 album Blue, the book is a poignant exploration of what it means to live without romantic love. Writing with great honesty and vulnerability and also great beauty, Amy recounts her often painful attempts to reconcile with her long-term single status in a world obsessed with coupledom. Arrangements in Blue is also a celebration of the joys of solitude and a manifesto for the importance of decentering romantic love in our lives and pouring into all the other relationships and practices that can sustain us. It's arrived in a moment in which we're witnessing a real shift in our approach to both romantic love and relationship dynamics, and it was such a pleasure to speak with Amy all about it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Amy. How are you doing today? I'm okay for a Monday, I think. Um, Yeah, so far so good. (laughs) Weather's picking up finally. Um, hope you're in good spirits. I've got your your book right in front of me. Um, <laughs> Arrangements in Blue, Notes on Love and Making a Life. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it. I, I, I think I saw something written about it somewhere and I thought, yes, I need to read this book. And I ordered it and I think I finished it in about three days. Oh. And um, yeah, I just absolutely devoured it. So um, thank you for writing it. Thank you for your sort of generosity and your vulnerability. It's an incredibly, it's very, it's raw. It's a raw book. Um, It's, but it's beautifully written. And um, I feel like it's one of those books that's just arrived at exactly the moment it needed to arrive. Um, I guess what struck me when I'm reading it is obviously it's an incredibly personal account of your own experiences and search or um, recalibration of your relationship to romantic love and such a personal story. But at the same time, to me, it's also a story that is becoming increasingly prevalent in society. A lot of women that I know are rethinking their relationship with romantic love. And I just wondered what the reception's been like and if you've been surprised how such a personal story has actually struck such a, a big social chord yeah it's so interesting to me because I think all the time that I was writing the book and sort of thinking about lives that don't have romantic love at their center I still felt like it was something somehow like I dealt with alone mm. um, and that there was something wrong with me otherwise my life would be different um and I guess what I've what's been in a way like a nice surprise for me um in publishing the book is understanding that my experience is so much more widely shared than perhaps Mm. I first anticipated but also it seems to have come out at a time where people are really kind of engaging with 
this issue in um I don't want to say like a more academic way but like there's research being done and mm. I hadn't looked for example at things like national statistics which tell a story about the growing proportion of people who don't live um in a romantic partnership for example um because you know I'm not I'm not a researcher or academic so like that wasn't the kind of book that I set out to write um but that has felt, made me feel in a way um kind of gratified Mm. that um, actually I was kind of writing from a point of view that was motivated by overcoming the shame and and, um, kind of feelings of loneliness that I felt in not having romantic love as like a, a big a big experience in my life but there are so many um Oh, what am I trying to say here? There are so many ways in which society can conspire to mm. make um, romantic love feel like an inevitability, um, and it promotes romantic love as as the way in which we should live. Um, so, opening up a conversation which explores the different types of ways you can have a meaningful life has felt really important to me and and sorry I'm really rambling now but like no it's a big it's a big one it's such a big one and I you know I think whether you um whether the reader necessarily relates to your personal experiences um with romantic love or not like the real chord that strikes throughout is this um, reckoning with shame, as you say, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, everyone has experienced feelings of shame. And I think what's so interesting about shame is that always, I think there's, I think it's true to say that always when you are brave enough to expose the source of your shame, you realise that it's so far from a singular experience. Yeah. And yeah. I, I guess, yeah, that's what I thought about when reading the book. I thought there was so much about it that I, you know, even though I'm currently in relationship, I, I really just recognize I've lived on my own a lot. I've traveled alone. You know, I've experienced feelings of shame around different areas of my life, sometimes through romantic love, sometimes through other areas. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's something so beautiful about uh, beautiful about the fact that when you're brave enough to expose the source of your shame, it almost is eradicated by the fact that you realize that it's not, it's not a solitary shame at all. And particularly with, with this, um, account of, of romantic love, like it feels, as I said, that there's a real moment of reckoning, especially among cishet women, um, Mm. about what, what, what romantic love means to us, what role it's going to play in our lives. Um, even when I think about, um, I don't know how you feel about his sort of take on it. But I thought about the fact that quite a long, maybe seven or eight years ago, Alan de Bottom wrote this piece for the New York Times called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, which is kind of like him extrapolating on his ideas that romanticism is the cause of like misery in our society. Which oh, is quite, I don't think I've not read it, but yeah, that's sounds have interesting. You not? It, it, no. it, I think it's one of the most read pieces on the New York Times ever on their okay. website ever. <laughs> so it's clearly struck enough. Um, but yeah, at the core of it, I suppose what he's talking about is, um, why we've really got ideas about romantic love wrong. It's it's through a very different lens to your personal account. It is, as you say, a bit more of a, well, obviously he's a philosopher, so he's kind of t- looked at, you know, different philosophies of love and been like the way that we've got it set up now is mm. A, very modern and B, very flawed. Um, 
I won't go into his argument because we're here to talk about your thoughts. But mm. again, that was the first time I personally sort of encountered that, um, this sort of discourse. And, and now in this moment, um, again, your book from, to me feels like it really encapsulates a real, I don't want to keep using the word reckoning, <laughs> but a, a re-examin- a reexamination of, of this subject. Um, why did you feel that it was, cause I know you're a, a prolific poet and that really comes through in the book. The writing is absolutely beautiful. Um, why did you feel like this was a subject that you wanted to write about? Yeah, um, I think probably there were two things. The first was that I I wrote an essay for Granta, which is almost like the the template for the book. And I, I wrote that essay in 2020. And originally I'd set out to write about Joni Mitchell and how her lyrics and music had informed my poetry and the poetries of others but as I was writing it I found that there was like a subject hiding behind the subject I'd anticipated Mm. and that subject was my thoughts and feelings about love and specifically about romantic love and because that essay um, was so kind of warmly embraced when it was published I, I felt that there was really something valuable in me offering up that particular vulnerability um, and discussion of desire for romantic love when it when it isn't present Mm. so it felt to me like it was really important um well not not important I just felt like I had more to say and I probably wanted to do that for two different reasons because one was because it felt like there was an audience for it who might find it valuable but also it was going to be really valuable for me Mm. because I'd sort of hit this tender spot within myself Mm. and I felt like if I don't kind of explore what is going on for me for romantic love why do I think that it's preventing me from having certain types of love, um, home life, intimacy, you know, things that I felt were kind of preserved for romantic relationships and how might I challenge my own assumptions um, and like the kind of walls I've built up around myself. And the only way that I know how to do that is really through writing. Mm. Um, I was figuring out what I thought and how I feel and what I want to do through the act of writing. So it's not I'm not saying that the writing the book was therapy for me because I it's not really um my experience of it. Mm. But I needed to kind of do my own inquiry mm. and um the way, yeah, the skills that I've got mean that the the <laughs> the more the kind of medium that I had to choose for that was was through writing um so part of it was for me but part of it was for other people because I know like how tough it is when you feel like you're you're kind of othered by society mm. um and that can really kind of calcify in you and make you become hard and brittle to the to the world I think and you know I was in my early 40s and I I want to have I want to believe that ahead of me is a a good long life Mm. um even if romantic love doesn't become part of it 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, there were moments, yeah, when I, I mean, you, you really succeeded in, in sharing like your internal journey and the book is very generous. Like I was kind of just very struck by how much of your internal life you were willing to share. I wonder if you had moments when you were writing it, where you just sort of like backspace, 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 like this is too much. (laughs) And if so, like, how did you push through that? Yeah. Um, so I really love this quote from, uh, the writer Melissa Fabos. Um, she had a book out last year called Bodywork, which is all about writing personal narrative. Um, and in that book, she recommends that you, when you're writing, you, you don't do it with like an external sensor or mm. audience in mind. You write it without the threat of being censored by other people or, you know, by yourself, because if you don't do that, you might leave out what she calls vital organs that your book can't live without. Um, And that's very much how I try to approach the writing of the book. I just try to give it everything and then take things away where they, it didn't feel like it was really contributing to the story that I was trying to tell Mm. so obviously lots of things are included and some of those things might to the reader feel like confrontingly personal or raw um but I was very um determined to represent like an authentic account of everything that goes on in one's mind when you um you're questioning like do I deserve to live a good life Mm. do I deserve love how is love present in my life and when we're like considering things like love and all the attendant thoughts that brings about like your attractiveness your value your desirability your um status in the world lots of negative thoughts and feelings are going to come up um lots of you know the the kind of self-negging that can go on. Um, And it doesn't mean that I think those things about myself or like I think those things all the time, but I I felt that it was authentic to say, here it is, like here's the bundle, here's the mess of all of the emotions that one might feel about these things or like I felt. Um, And you can observe me figuring things out through Mm. reading. Yeah, absolutely. Have you, what's the reception been like? Have people reached out to you? Because I feel like, again, the vulnerability of it is such that if you were reading it and, you know, really aligned with those experiences, I would feel compelled. I mean, I did contact you. <laughs> I was like, let me start, hunted you down through your website. <laughs> so thanks for responding. But yeah, because, because you've been so um, willing to share um, your interiority, I would imagine that women have contacted you in fact the day after I contacted you I walked into a restaurant I was going to the bathroom and I walked past the bar and there was a young woman sitting at the bar reading your book and I just thought it's land oh, this book is landing so, yeah that's yeah. That makes me so happy yeah. I, haven't, I haven't spotted anyone reading it in public yet and oh damn that. I'm sorry that I haven't you <laughs> yeah no that would just be such a thrill yeah um I I've had yeah lots of dms basically yeah um and I really appreciate people people taking the time to talk about why it's meant something yeah. to them. 
um, because obviously that takes quite a lot of courage as well. Um, yeah. And I know, I know what it feels like when you read something and you feel an affinity with it. Um, and it's, it's kind of exciting and scary and comforting kind of all, all at once. So yeah, I have had a lot of messages um, and I've had messages from people who perhaps I didn't expect to contact mm. me, you know, so one of the hopes I had was that men would read this book, yeah. um, particularly heterosexual men, um, you know, in, in kind of cishet relationships. Um, and that's felt important to me that, mm. you know, not just that some men have read it and told me it's made them kind of think about how they have, um, behaved your famous cat relationships that's my cat minis <laughs> trying to get on the mic there um and also like queer men and queer women as well and and that has been like really great too because I've I've found I found like I've had so, I, like so much to learn in witnessing people in different types of mm. relationships and really wish that I think when I was a kid, I'd had role models of the different ways romantic um, and loving relationships could be formed. Um, because I think the kind of this, this is template of romantic love see, is quite shitty in lots mm. of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and Certainly, I didn't feel until, you know, the last couple of years, I had any sense of what I deserved or should expect from a good romantic relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of knew that if by talking about stuff, people would want to, in turn, talk about stuff with me. Mm. Um, and it was like part of the bargain. And I guess I hope that... Um, it's not just helpful for the people who want to talk to me about it, but it might help enrich, I guess, the way I think about the stuff I've written in the book as well. Yeah, because um, it definitely feels like we're at a cultural inflection point, Um, not just with the way that we think about romantic love, but clearly there's like a big uh, conversation around motherhood, um, Mm. a big shift around our public conversation around motherhood about um, you know, I think, as I said, one of the reasons I was really would excited to talk to you is because just as I was reading the book or maybe just after, I can't remember, I do these salons and I did one on family, which was a very broad, <laughs> a very broad title for, you know, what I wanted to discuss, which was sort of reconsidering the family, the nuclear family unit, mm. um, you know, as sort of like our aspirational model of how we set our lives up, even if we are, in heterosexual relationships, you know, what, what could that look like? How could it be different? Because the reality is that for all the romanticism of coupledom in our society, there's also clearly a lot of, um, discontent, you know, um, with people who do set up their lives in couples, maybe have children, you know, being like, "Mm," especially among women, this is not really what I, um, signed up for or what I thought it was going to be. Um, so that that's an interesting thing that's happening. And then another thing that, you know, I thought about reading the book was like, um, you know, there's a loneliness epidemic in our society. And Mm. so clearly a lot of people, even perhaps ones who are in romantic relationships are feeling alone. 
Um, mm. You know, you really paint a picture of your life, which is very rich and you obviously have amazing uh, friendships. And I, mm. you know, I thought to another type of person reading this book, they might read it and think, well, I've got, a, I've got a partner, but a romantic partner, but I, I dream of being able to build these kind of friendships that you've, you've integrated into your lives. What I'm trying to say is that there's just so many, like, I feel like your book is part of a broader, um, part of this loneliness conversation, you know, with a lot of people sitting at home in different calibrations of, of social setups and feeling, um, alone. Yeah. And I I know that, um, you know, just from like talking to friends and family members and from what I've seen, some people can find themselves so alone within their, um, you know, like immediate familial relationships Mm. for various reasons, you know, like you might be a a mother who has been having to take on all of the childcare responsibilities and feels really isolated as a result of that. Or you might have like got together with somebody very early and not felt able to develop new friendships in adulthood. Um, And, you know, the the feelings of loneliness are certainly not exclusive to Mm. people who live alone. I mean, funnily enough for me, like sometimes it's not um, I I remember saying to a friend last year, I was feeling really depressed because I you know every now and then I I get really profound (laughs) depression Mm. and I remember messaging her and saying oh you know funnily enough for me I feel quite lonely and I don't normally feel lonely Mm. um because I've kind of got life at the right balance for me like the Mm. right balance Mm -hmm. alone time and and being with people but I know like during the pandemic for example when people you know had to stay within their their family or you know their their private home that was a real confronting experience for lots of people who then realized the frailty perhaps of those relationships within that situation Mm. And, and I wonder if that's kind of one of the contributions to this conversation coming up now. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, you started your, did you start your book before the pandemic? Cause it opened no, in 2020. During, yeah. So I, I wrote the essay in 2020 and then wrote the proposal in 2021 and I finished it last year. So it's, it is kind of a product of the pandemic. Right. Years, right. But it's, but know. it's not, it doesn't feel like a pandemic book at no. all. No, it's, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not. And also I want to, you know, stress to anyone who's listening to this conversation, hasn't read it. It's, it's actually a very joyful book in so many ways. You know, it, it's not like one long lament. It's a celebration <laughs> of, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just to clarify that it is a celebration of, of like the joys of solitude and, um, you know, what that can mean. And again, you know, really beautiful depictions of your friendships, which sound incredible and, and your relationship with your creativity and the way that you've built your home, um, yeah, as I said, you start the book in 2020 and you're on this sort of pilgrimage to, to Los Angeles, which I, I used to live in LA and um, oh, I had wow. some friends who lived actually on Lookout Mountain Drive, which is where you go. Because what we've also failed to mention, which is a huge part of the book, is that it's framed around Joni Mitchell's um, seminal mm. album, Blue, 
um, and you sort of use uh, the structure of that album to provide a framework for your own musings on all these different aspects of what love can mean and and you know which is a really again really adds to the poetic feeling of the book and it it made me think a lot about um or about LA which is a very evocative place and you know you talk about really registering all the colors there which is something that I always do when I travel like I see cities in colors and LA is a very it's a very blue, blue and green kind of place, you know, yeah. that's the landscape. And there is something when you go up into Laurel Canyon, which you obviously did to, um, to, to visit Joni's former home, like there's something about Laurel Canyon that you can, it, it really, it strikes you, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was just, I was so bewildered in LA because it, it feels like it does have this kind of profound magic to yeah. the place, but it also is this place of kind of intense dislocation, you know, particularly if you're used to UK cities and you're suddenly in, you know, what is ostensibly, um, you know, all of these interconnected cities that are all called Los Angeles that mm-hmm. you can't really walk around in, in a in the same way that you would, you know, walk around an area in, in London. And, you know, every now and then I would find myself like walking down these really, really long roads, um, you know, just trying to find somewhere that didn't have more than one place that I could go in. Um, yeah, there's no hub. And, and, I mean, yeah, there's... there's- there's somewhat there's it's changed a bit but yeah it's not you're not going to go like downtown or to Soho and find that equivalent of concentration of life yeah and um and if you're a stranger to you know you I felt like I really needed some kind of spirit guide to Mm. help me get the best out of LA um and instead of me sort of wandering around like bedazzled and and kind of (laughs) confused and deranged with with jet lag but um when I went up to lookout mountain and I was like outside Joni's house old old house I should say um it did feel like I was in a completely different place Mm. you know the atmosphere felt different the sounds were different like it's really a sensory a sensory um experience up up in Laurel Canyon um and I feel like if I ever went back to LA which I would really love to do that's my dream would be to stay somewhere there um yeah yeah yeah, (laughs) and I was was watching what was I watching Daisy Jones and the Six and there's like there's that it some of it is set in Laurel Canyon and yeah um, it was very appealing not the not the show but uh the the setting no it is it is magical my friends lived in this like um we used to call it a tree house it was a house but it was kind of on somewhat on stilts and um yeah you could you know LA in general is just sort of a very because you are driving because you don't really have to deal with street life you kind of just you're just in your own bubble for better or for Mm. worse sometimes that works out well it can also be a profoundly you know, isolating place and an extremely lonely place, um, which I think is, is good for artists because they, you know, for introverted artists who just want to be in their own world, Mm. it's very immersive. They don't have to deal with outside distractions. For me living there, I realized I was an extrovert and that was, (laughs) took me a while to (laughs) figure that out. Um, but it was funny because actually when I was living there, I was quite a lot younger. I was actually in my early twenties. And, um, I remember writing a I wrote a book proposal myself for a book about aloneness and really, um, you know, I was really sort of trying to, um, normalize, 
um, being alone as, as a woman in society, um, maybe not through a romantic lens, but just through, you know, the sense that it's not weird to like go out and experience the world on your own. And it doesn't, it's not less than, and it's not sad. And, you know, you write a lot about your experiences traveling alone, which I can relate to. Sometimes it's incredible. Sometimes it's a bit (laughs) less incredible. I remember going on holiday to Lisbon once, um, and going to a restaurant and they, and asking for a table for one. And they sat me facing a wall (laughs) right right at the entrance to the restaurant. So it wasn't even a private wall. It was like where people came in. So reading your, you know, accounts of like how sometimes when you travel on your own as a woman, like you sort of just get relegated to the status of, you know, some sort of like, like, you know, peripheral person. I definitely related to that. But then again, you know, actually now I look back on my experience of traveling alone and I feel like there's such emotional intensity to being on your own. Um, and you really capture that, I think. I just think that, um, being able to be alone is just such a tremendous gift. Mm. Um, and it's a skill that you can develop. And I like, I understand why it can be scary for some people, but, um, there is such intense pleasure in being able to just cater for one, you know, just all about, it's all about you. It's all about your needs. Um, and I think, you know, if the consumer world, like, could just get on a bit more on board with that and think about like, how do I make this restaurant like so beautiful, inviting for the person who is dining alone and, um, you know, not have this whole performance of, oh, we're going to put you on this crap table or we're going to immediately pull away like the other cutlery and the glassware and make you feel like you've been abandoned, not just by like a partner, but by, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the tableware. Mm-hmm. Um, that would that would be really great. Um, I'm I'm kind of cheerleading for a bit of um, excellence in tables for one in restaurants and cafes. Well, actually, when I was reading it, I was thinking, I wonder if, and I assume you haven't, because I think you would have written about it. Have you ever been to Tokyo or Japan? No, I mean I would love to go, but do they do they great do this? place, great okay. place to go on your own, <laughs> uh, particularly as a woman, because it feels totally safe and you don't ever get harassed, which just takes a big mental load away, but very much a, you know, um, a city and I'm sure outside of Tokyo is similar throughout Japan. That's whether it's normalized to be dining alone, doing things alone. You never feel like a weirdo eating in a restaurant alone, you know? And I think they do have in some, I think it's udon restaurants. I've never been to one, but I'm aware of the fact that they have these little booths kind of mm. like, I think you write about the, like your dream of a little booth. Oh, for my one. Little booth yeah. <laughs> I think that would really take off. I think you should... <laughs> Patent that somehow, but um, yeah, you know, I think I, I think there is a, sh- a shift happening. Maybe not reflected, as you say, on the sort of consumer level, because um, you know, again, I, I was single for a long time, and the single tax that you pay mm. is, you know, and you talk about that as well. It's like a, it's such a it's a financial, it's a real financial like uh, limitation, or you know, mm. it feels deeply unfair that you should have to pay, you know, pay like find yourself in that situation. I suppose that's part of the, I, I guess that's kind of historically the reason why people have partnered, right? To share the, share yeah, it's the like, financial there's load. Yeah, it's like this massive like economic imperative. And I think because of that, that's one of the things that makes you feel like it's somehow like morally 
a moral mm. failure to be single mm. you're like oh we're going to charge you more because you know you, we're trying to disincentivize you being single it's just yeah. bonkers to me absolutely yeah it's crazy and I, but i i think i think we're at the beginning of a of a genuine um a genuine change and it'll be interesting to see how it pans out i think it's going to take a while to sort of unfold and for us to witness what it's going to mean um but again like I know so many people I've had my own experiences you know I did think when I was obviously so much of it's framed around Joni and she's writing in 1971 and I wonder you know even though her depiction of love is so intense and and you know that it's so evocative I wonder like if maybe now it feels a bit out of date or do you, in terms of her conception of like what a male female relationship should be. And maybe that's why we're at this weird inflection point because we've grown up absorbing narratives from a time that maybe isn't the politics of which don't really resonate with us anymore. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question to consider. I could probably, um, I feel like I could probably really defend actually the sentiments on Blue because one of the things that on on Joni Mitchell's album Blue, like one of the things that really drew me to it is her willingness to let things be unresolved and like being unequivocal and ambivalent about Mm. um, stuff. So there's a line where she says, um, I love you when I forget about me. And it's like this acknowledgement that she's somehow relegating herself um, to prioritise her lover's um, desires and wants and what she needs from it, which I felt feel is like a really contemporary um, acknowledgement that we haven't really grappled with yet, the way in which in lots of our relationships we're, we're kind of told we have to compromise, compromise. Um, our standards are too high. Um, we're too picky. All of these things. And I think actually we should have high standards for romantic relationships, given how central they are in our lives. Mm. And we should be aspiring to, um, I'm not saying like p- perfect relationships because obviously we have to be able to deal with conflict in our relationships and have like authentic conversations and and whatnot. But I I certainly felt that I was told repeatedly the reason I was single was because I was, um, my standards were too high or I was intimidating and it was all, all about me. It was all about everything that I was doing wrong. Mm. Um, And that certainly kind of made me just deny my my needs. Mm. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I could probably put up a kind of impassioned defense um, that her lyrics are are relevant to the contemporary moment. But of course, like um, I probably wouldn't call like a partner, my old man, for example, (laughs) (laughs) which is what she does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, to be clear, like Joni's, you know, Joni's a radical woman who's like, uh, not to say that Joni's sort of like a boring traditionalist who sold us like very, you know, boring conventional ideas of what a life could look like. Certainly not. Um, I grew up listening to my mum was a big Joni Mitchell fan. And I, I think I actually, when I was growing up, I always found it a bit too sad 
you know like as a child yeah. it was just too sad there's a lot of sadness yeah yeah I don't know if you've ever read that Zadie Smith essay about Joni Mitchell I have yeah and, and I love what she says about like the the debt of beauty like we owe Joni Mitchell the debt of beauty which I think is such a yeah a beautiful line it also made me think about a Joni, um, a Zadie Smith essay that I meant to mention earlier, but, um, and slightly to go off topic, but just thinking, did you ever read that essay she wrote about suffering in that little mini book intimations that she wrote during the pandemic? No, no, it's I don't just, think I did. it was a really, um, you know, those essays are very succinct, but she basically is just saying, you know, what we, what we learned in the pandemic was that everyone, we know that everyone suffers and really it kind of exposed the fact that, you know, to the person living alone and, and feeling lonely, it was difficult. To the person homeschooling kids, it was difficult. To the person, yeah. you know, not being able to escape their partner, it was difficult. To the person who like went to bed every night, like it really just brought to the surface that every <laughs> every configuration <laughs> of life can be difficult. But unfortunately, you know, it's it's like which your book obviously and fully unpacks is is still romantic love is considered to be the only true happy state that we could live our lives yeah. in yeah and the only way that you can somehow be compl- complete as complete. a person yeah. yeah um I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing process um mm. obviously this is your first novel am I right but yeah it's my like first book length non-fiction right but you've published several collections of poetry yes yeah how how did the process of writing a novel differ to writing your poems did you find it very difficult yeah it's I find it completely different because when you're writing well for me um the way I wrote poetry was slowly over a number of years I would accumulate poems and so the book sort of builds in these increments Mm. and when I had enough poems that was the point at which I had a I had a book right Um, and some poems would come out like fully intact really fast and others um, I would probably work on over several months with lots of kind of editing and revision so the pace of a poetry collection is set by the poet Mm. whereas this book you know, I wrote the proposal um, and then had, had basically a year to write the full manuscript. Mm. So immediately there's like a deadline and parameters are imposed around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of aiming for around 70,000 words. Um, and I found it like a real test of my endurance and concentration. It took so much discipline in a way that poetry just doesn't. Um, And that was hard because like some parts of the book, I was writing about stuff that I find really difficult to think about, talk about, um, and knew that I would have to kind of create space around that to do it in a way Mm. that felt safe and um you know left me with something because I've got a full-time job as well oh wow Um, yeah yeah. (laughs) so you know I was basically writing I you know used all of my holiday my annual leave to write the book yeah um most weekends for a year um and you know an hour before work every day and some days you know in that hour before work I might 
fix one thing that fix one editorial comment or write one sentence yeah and other times I would manage to write you know 300 words but you know I I I could only push it so far yeah um I'm not somebody who can just like oh I'm just going to get the the num- you know going to work on my numbers and get like a thousand words done every day um, yeah yeah also as you say you know there's deeply personal things about your, you know, your upbringing, your family, past relationships, like that's not really something where you can just slam it out in an hour before work and then toddle off and like, you know, that's, that's like, you have to leave room to process that kind of emotion inbuilt into the, wow, I'm so impressed that you're doing a full-time job as well. (laughs) Have you had a little break from writing since you published this book or are you still... Yeah, like I've had to do, you know, I've done writing related to the book, like some articles and essays and interviews and things like that. Um, But there's, you know, you kind of have to refresh the brain, like Mm -hmm. let the compost kind of do its composting. Yeah, Yeah. no, 100%. That wasn't, there's nothing more annoying when you've just published a book. People are like, so what's your next book? We're like, okay, I've just this one came out a month ago, so we're just working with this one for now. But um, that's actually incredible that you've managed to figure it out around around full time writing. Um, what can you tell me a bit about your your history with reading and like when you were younger, sort of what kind of books you like to read and and what kind of books you enjoy reading now? Oh yeah, um, so. I probably I feel like it's a real cliche around writers that they were like voracious bookworms when mm. they they were kids. Actually, like I it took me quite a long time when I was a kid to learn how to read. I probably got slight like mild dyslexia. Mm. Um so it wasn't until I was a teen really that I started to get massively into reading and what I wanted to read were novels that my sister read. She's 7 yeah. years older than me. So I was like trying to read literary fiction you know when I was 13 and 14 (laughs) um and probably lots of it went over my head but I was reading um Janice Galloway um she had this book called The Trick Is To Keep I think oh god I'm gonna get this wrong now but I think it's called The Trick Is To Keep Breathing um which I'm pretty sure I plagiarized for like my GCSE (laughs) um English literature (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah I was like really into dark tales I was obsessed with Twin Peaks and so I like read all of the Twin right. Peak books yeah. tie-ins um you know the bell jar I was just like trying to get into um what it would be like to be a, a young adult woman and so like those are the types of books that I was reading um mm-hmm. And then in my 20s, because I started to write poetry, I like pretty much solidly read only poetry for about 10 years between like my late 20s, um, wow. late, late, you know, mid to late 30s. And then I was like, oh, my God, why am I doing this? And I started I reading poetry novels. for 10 years. You emerged <laughs> from your poetry fugue state. Yeah, I was like, enough poetry. Um, and then I've been reading so many novels since I began writing non non-fiction and um, because for some reason they're this it's the sort of thing that really gets me thinking about mm. um writing personal narrative and, and mm. memoir. this is a slightly selfish question but yeah for someone who perhaps has not read as much poetry as they would have liked <laughs> yeah. and 
appreciates poetry, but kind of doesn't really know where to start. Yeah. How would you recommend sort of dipping your toe into the world of poetry? Ooh. I mean, anthologies are a great way to go, I think, mm. um, because they kind of give you a bit of everything. And in fact, um, a friend of mine put together a poetry anthology a few years ago, um, mm. Ella Risbridger, put together a poetry um, anthology called Set Me on Fire. And what's really amazing about that, so she categorises these poems by feeling. So it's like the heartbreak poems, Mm. the can't get out of bed in the morning poems, Mm. the um, grief poems, the kind of new birth poems. And she selects this beautifully diverse clutch of, contemporary poets alongside some older poets so something like that I think is a really great way to encounter poetry um Mm. for the first time but also like reading the poetry review website um and the poetry foundation website and like looking looking at their latest issues they always have choice choice excerpts on there okay that's great tips thank you because you feel like oh my god do I need to start with the classics and work my way oh no I mean I wouldn't no (laughs) (laughs) I mean I've never really connected with sort of like yeah the canon of of poetry that's why I think I've found it harder to access I mean I really appreciate it when I read a great poem obviously it really moves me and when I read writing like yours which is I feel very informed by poetry you know I'm like I love this kind of writing. I like this kind of very evocative style of writing, but um, because I don't really have much knowledge of poetry as a genre or as a field or as a practice, I just have no idea where to go in as it were. Yeah. And I still feel like that the way that poetry was, well, was taught in school when I was at school, you know, which is like the eighties and nineties and, you know, possibly even more recently, um, you know, the people that we were told to read were white, middle class, mm. most often male. And mm-hmm. um, no wonder that poet, those poetries weren't really speaking to me. And it wasn't until like I read, um, you know, like American women poets. Um, and then, you know, through that, began to encounter all kinds of fantastic kind of underheard poets in the UK um, did I get excited about it? So you're definitely not alone, basically. Okay, good. That's my one of my sources of secret shame that I'm very like poetry illiterate um, <laughs> for someone who's reasonably well read in other areas of my life. Um, I did ask you if you had a chance to think about um, a couple of book recommendations. One, um, a book that recently had an impact on you and yeah. one, a book that you'd recommend to anyone. So um, I've got... I've got two books I want to mention. Um, yeah. One I actually have only just bought, so I haven't started reading it, but I feel like it's going to be amazing. So I want to okay. talk about that one. Fair enough. So it's called Ordinary Notes by Christina Sharp, and it's published yeah. by Daunt Books. And um, let me just read the blurb to you. So Ordinary Notes explores with immense care, profound questions about loss, pain, beauty, private memory and public monument, art complexity and the shapes of black life that emerge in the wake um and it's um full of um like vignettes memoir photographs 
notes, questions, and yeah. um, tiny kind of essays yeah. all about um, black existence. And oh, so I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited to read that and don't publish so many books that I love. So I, I know that I'm onto a winner with them. Um, with okay, that's a great recommendation. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just held it up so yeah uh, so it's got a great cover good cover um, yeah. and then the the book that I think everyone should read so I'm gonna say Bell Hooks is all about love I oh. wish I'd read that when I was a teenager I yeah. think it is a book of like profound wisdom mm. um, and compassion yeah. um, and I read it as I was writing my book and I thought, oh my God, this book would probably be so different if I'd mm. encountered Bell Hooks when I was much younger. Actually, I'm so glad you've brought up that book because if I had, what what would have happened if you hadn't is this conversation would have ended in about probably four to 24 hours, I would think, oh my God, I didn't mention all about love. Like, yeah. you know, there's me crediting Alan de Botton. And I will say that his article, um, change things for me but actually you're totally right like that is the book that I think has uh contributed to this reframing of our ideas of romantic love I also read that book probably four or five years ago and you just think this should be given to kids when they're like 12 yeah yeah Yeah. it's just every page there's something to learn or like something that something that's illuminated and what I really love is the you know she's talking about love in so many different dimensions um all of which kind of add up to this this kind of rich um conversation about love um so I can't recommend it highly enough and it's really lovely to know that it also was really important to you as well really important to me and definitely I think in the last year or so just um it, it's definitely had a big renaissance or resurgence culturally yeah. and um, I'm seeing more and more people reading it and I, I, I think it's just like you say it's one of those books where you can't read that book and not be shaped by it it's yeah. just it's a total paradigm shift in your understanding of love so yeah and thank you so much for making the time to speak with me Amy and like I said I in those four days that I was reading your book I was like I was in it um thank you so much yeah and you know not every book has that effect so I think it's really a testament to um the way that you sort of opened yourself up and and allowed people to to step into your world and I think you'll have made a lot of people feel a lot less alone um which is always an amazing thing to be able to do with a book so uh thank you again for making the time to do this and can't wait to can't wait to read your next book no pressure (laughs) (laughs) thank you for being really nice thank you